Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and today we are talking to the author of uh, Delivering the People's Message, The Changing Politics of the Presidential Mandate, published by Cornell University Press this year. The author is Julia Azari. Julia, how are you doing today? Great. How are you? I'm doing great and enjoyed the book. Before we get to it, uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your background, where you are now, anything you'd like to share about uh, who you are. Sure. Um, I'm an assistant professor at Marquette University in Milwaukee. Um, I have a PhD from from Yale, um, and I did my undergrad at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So I guess let me... um, let me talk just briefly about how I ended up studying presidential rhetoric. Can I do that for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a, a great way to jump in. Then we'll talk more about the specifics. Of the yeah. Um, so I actually started my political science career as a comparativist, and I was really interested in transitions from authoritarian regimes. And as I read more about uh, authoritarian regimes, I got really interested in the politics of justification, um, and how these non-democratic regimes in various parts of the world would justify what they were doing. Um, and so that is actually how I ended up studying presidential rhetoric. So I often tell people, you know, I started this to really get into comparative politics and tra- political transitions in the world, um, and then I ended up studying American presidential speeches. But that theme of, of justification is kind of what ties it together. Yeah, and I think that's such an interesting um sort of way to start this conversation because um you know this this is like a lot of the the books that we write is is focused on a, a small thing, but you wrap it up in this larger larger conversation yeah certainly that's what i um what I tried to do, and I would hope that this would be of of some interest to people in in comparative politics and in um in political theory and to kind of really think about what the presidential mandate means um since wrapping up this project, I've kind of gone in other American politics directions with parties and ideologies and vice presidential selections. So that's kind of where I'm at now in my career is I'm really interested in this president party um, relationship and an in institutional change across multiple institutional contexts. Yeah, that's great. It's an interest of mine and something that I've written about as well. So, so let's start with the, the book. Um, and, and let's say that a, a president has just one election. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the range of things that he or she might say to support their agenda for their first 100 days? The mandate being one thing, but before we get to the sort of what the book is about, what are some of the other things, other justifications that at least in theory are out there? Right. That's a great question. That is the question of, of this book is kind of what are the alternatives? And this is lurking in the background of the text. But what I found reading all of these speeches um, – over the course of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century is you get a couple of different, a couple of different directions. One is rooted in kind of these broader philosophical concepts. And LBJ was big on this. Um, he was big on talking about justice, um, talking about the, the values of America, talking about equality and kind of using these more philosophical terms. Another way is to really talk about immediate problem solving. Um, FDR was big on this. Eisenhower was big on this. Is much more pragmatic, and you can see why in both cases. Much more pragmatic. This is the problem that we're facing. This is what we're going to do to address it. Um, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush also was kind of like that, a more kind of pragmatic 
discourse. So those are the main ones that I find. Sometimes you get a more constitutional justification. Um, depending on the issue, you might get someone talking more about, you know, we need to do these things to get more in line with the text of with our founding document or our founding values. That usually goes right into that philosophical language as well. Yes. But but in addition to those, the, the one that, that people often pay attention to is the is the subject of your book, mm-hmm. which is these references to, to a mandate, which which, you know, in some ways has uh, we sort of commonly understand in, in very crude ways, but you really pay attention to it. So what does it exactly mean for a president to refer to a mandate? What what is that what is that how does that work? So broadly I define this as any time a president uses the election or the campaign to justify what they're doing. Um, and in this book, and to some extent, and there's another article I published where I pay a lot more attention to these kind of categories of mandate, um, they can either talk about the the magnitude of the election. So one way to talk about a mandate, and this is usually the way that I think creeps into journalistic language after an election has just occurred, is kind of, you know, what what would be an exceptional enough result to to constitute a mandate? So they talk about Sometimes in the journalistic conversation and in other literature, they'll talk about, well, it was a surprise or it was a majority or it was a big majority, which gets very fuzzy very fast. Like what what kind of numbers justify uh, an exceptional election result? So that's one definition. Um, another definition which reaches further back into American history and a lot of people attribute to Andrew Jackson has to do with this idea that the president has a unique relationship with the people. And that members of Congress represent their districts or their states, what have you, um, but only the president is elected by the whole people. And so by virtue of that, the president is kind of this unique representative of the whole people. Um, and Woodrow Wilson also had some writing on that topic and some ideas on that topic as well. Um, and then finally, the one that I find is most common in the 20th century and especially in the uh, early 21st century is this more almost European concept of a responsible party mandate. I said I would do this. I campaigned on it. People voted for me and now I'm going to do it. And so that gets you out of some of these other problems. You don't have to make a unique claim as the president. You don't have to make a unique claim about the magnitude of the election victory. You can just say, I promised that I would do this, and I'm keeping my promise. And that has a lot of resonance when we think about how democracy is supposed to work. It really relates to ideas like transparency, accountability, keeping your promises, um, having distinct alternatives that people can choose from in the course of an election, a lot of really resonant concepts. Um, so those are kind of the three main thrusts of mandate claiming that that I find in both in the literature and also in the way that politicians and journalists talk about mandates. Yeah, you've you've already alluded to um, sort of how far back you've you've gone, but let's talk about this just a little bit more specifically. What is the historical period that you cover, and and what are the types of presidential rhetoric that that you're focused on? All right, so um, this is where things get interesting. The data set that I created, mostly, I created most of that while I was a uh, grad student and then um, updated it and expanded a little bit um, during my time here at Marquette, starts in 1929 um, and goes up through 2009. And what I look at is the first 70 days of each presidential term. Um, In the 
In the broader scope of the analysis, I try to look a little bit further back, and I do look at inaugurals um, prior to that period to get a sense of mandate rhetoric in, in that context, but there, the uh, presidential speech data isn't as systematically collected prior to 1929, so the data set just goes far, that far back, and then I kind of fill in the context from the progressive era and a little bit from the 19th century. Um, and I look at a really wide range of communications, or at least I tried to. So I include major addresses like the inaugural, um, like the first, um, the first State of the Union or you know joint session address in a presidential term, um, any televised addresses. I look at the radio addresses that uh, Ronald Reagan kind of began in the early 80s and other presidents have kept up. I look at press conferences. I look at communications with the executive branch, um, communications with Congress, speeches to any kind of assembled group. So we might have um, the National Association of Governors or governors or mayors from a particular party. We might have, you know, the, the Boy Scouts or something like that. So a whole bunch of different organizations. Um, so I look at a really... Um, what I felt like was a pretty wide range of different types of presidential communications, not just major addresses. Now, you also allude to kind of the, the, the conventional or the textbook or, or the popular explanation of, of mandates that, w- that would seem to permit only those with a large, whatever large is, large margin of victory to claim a mandate. Um, but you suggest in 2001, just, just one example, that, that George W. Bush... Mm-hmm. Uh, showed how this isn't always the case. Um, so was President Bush acting out of turn, or is this conventional hypothesis about electoral victory margin just just largely wrong? Yeah, so I think that there may be a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B there. Um, I think to the extent that... The extent that Bush used mandate language in 2001, it was maybe not completely disingenuous, right? And this is why, actually, the way that Bush used the mandate claims, I think, kind of illustrates the the problem with this concept. So Bush obviously didn't win. He didn't win the popular vote at all. Um, It was very, 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 very thin margin in 2000, as we all probably remember. Um, So it wasn't anything like, you know, Ronald Reagan in 1984 or Lyndon Johnson in 1964, he couldn't claim to have this major big majority behind him. And he didn't claim that. Um, When he was talking about his tax cuts, he said, look, I made it very clear what I stood for. He did say at one point, you know, I don't, Dick and I, Dick Cheney and I, you know, made it clear where we stood and we wouldn't be here if we hadn't. But, you know, he never made any false claims about the magnitude of that victory, what he, what he claimed was that they had taken a distinct position and that people had voted for them on the basis of that position. It's hard to attribute a, an aggregate feeling, right? You have millions of people, and so you can't really aggregate those preferences in a any kind of meaningful way. And um, Public choice theorists have really engaged with that, and William Riker has some writings from the early 80s about that. But, you know, reaching beyond that problem, if you're going to look at why people vote or why people aligned themselves with the Republican Party and then subsubsequently voted for, for Bush, tax, you could do worse than tax policy. 
Um, and in that sense, I thought some of his 2001 claims were probably some of the more more resonant ones, even if that wasn't a huge part of the 2000 campaign necessarily. It seems like a kind of reasonable way to think about politics. Um, I forgot how you phrased your second question, but so well, and, and let me I'm actually just, just sorry. No, and let me just ask ask for just a little little clarification. Yeah. So so in the area of tax, what would it sound like, or what did it sound like for for George Bush to to make a claim about a mandate? How did he connect his electoral victory right. to the 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 mandate he purported to have gotten for specific tax policies or a specific tax agenda? Mm-hmm. Let me find it. There's a really great quote, and of course I have no idea where it is in my book because I haven't opened my book since I um, since I published it, um, and I'm not sure that I will be able to um, very quickly. Um, Bush did a lot more of this in um, in 2004. Are you asking what the claims look like? What did he What did he say? If not literally, what did right. he say? What What was the What was the type of thing that he was saying? Um, given that he had other alternatives, he could have mm-hmm. He could have supported his tax claim based on a his own um, ideological belief about about the right tax policy. But But the suggestion is that that at least in part he based this on some sort of claim about his mandate. Right. So something that Bush said both times. He said a lot more in 2005, but he did say it several times in 2001. Is Something along the lines of, I I made my position very clear. Everyone knew where I stood. They voted for, for me because of it. And now that's what I'm going to do. Um, he also said this in the context, sorry, this is kind of coming back to me. And I go into this in more depth in a chapter in another book that I edited. And I have a chapter on mandates. But it's um, there's not as much of it in uh, delivering the people's message um, about Bush Bush's first term. Um but another thing he said, someone had asked him in, in an exchange with reporters, a reporter said, you know, why aren't you being more bipartisan on education? And he kind of said, well, I am being bipartisan, but also I took this position and everyone knew what I stood for. And so he uses it in that context as kind of a as kind of a defense. So it's very much this responsible party notion that I made it very it's all it's very Bush it's very Bush, right? I made my position mm-hmm. clear, it's clear, everyone knew, and now that's what I'm gonna do. And and there's a sort of implicit idea so that sounds great in some ways, right? Everyone knows where everyone stands. But then there's this implicit idea that well and given that I won the election, the other side isn't really gonna be participating in this anymore. Which obviously is not how our system works and is particularly opens up a can of worms when you've only won um you only won the presidency because of a very narrow um and a very narrow popular vote and then a split electoral college decision and everything that happened in 2000. Right so so you you do a lot of statistical analysis in the book and without wading too deeply into the the methods or statistics you you do develop a, a bit of a model to explain the prevalence or, or, or use of this kind of mandate language. So, so briefly, what is it? What are the factors that, uh, that seem to relate to, to the, the use by presidents? Right. So what I use, um, I actually just do some really straightforward uh, correlations in the book. Um, I look at 
so I use popular vote the the five factors that are in this table um in the data chapter in the book. I look at three different ways you could measure the election result. First of all, um popular vote share, so how the percentage of the popular vote um, the popular vote margin, so the you know the margin of victory in the popular vote, and then the elect the share of the electoral college, and those correlations are all basically non-existent. So then I look at public approval for the presidents, where we have re- reliable data, and I just did I did an average of their public approval over the period where I have the um, have the rhetorical data, so from the inauguration through the end of March, um, and the correlation there is negative point four five. Um, and I look at polarization, which I use the DW nominate scores for the House um, to measure polarization. I did that using different Congresses. I used the one that met after the president took office. I used the one that had just concluded. I averaged the two, and the result was always about the same, if that makes any sense. That's probably mm-hmm. methodological woods. Anyway, I did a bunch of ways to make sure the result wasn't a, a red herring. Um, and polarization is correlated uh, 0.53, um, which is statistically significant, I believe, for that um, for that n of 25 or whatever it is. So that's um, you know that's a pretty big correlation in a fairly small data set, and it's not a regression, so it's not controlling for anything. There's a lot of noise, and through all that noise, breaks through this connection, right? Um, mm-hmm. These things both change over time. Um, so there's this temporal dynamic, and the available data makes it really difficult to figure out what's doing the causing, which is why I did so much more um, qualitative analysis for the rest of the book. But the the basic idea is that the two factors that seem to be consistently related to the use of mandate rhetoric are party polarization and declines in overall levels of presidential approval. So presidents don't claim mandates when they win big. They claim mandates when they're unpopular and when the parties are polarized. And what, and what, is this, what does this mean? Help us, help us make sense of this. As, as you just mentioned, you, you approached through much of the second half of the book the subject uh, in, a, in a qualitative m- manner. Um, but connect this to us to other things that, that we care about. I was, I was particularly intrigued. Towards the end of the book, you describe a group called Use Your Mandate, mm-hmm. which uh, sounds like a relatively recent, uh, 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 recently formed group that maybe you can talk about. What role does the public have in, in pushing a president mm-hmm. to base policy on, on a mandate? Because there is this sort of push and pull. Um, how does this relate to, to us in the electorate? Does it matter? Yeah, so what I found looking... In kind of a more stylistic way, the different policies that presidents had linked up to mandate claiming was actually those policies tend to lose. Um, those policies tend not to do well in Congress. Sometimes they're popular, but often they're not. Um, one example of that is Bush's, in 2005, his push for privatizing Social Security, which was really was not a main issue in the election was not especially popular, could not win over his own party, and yet he consistently used that language and claimed, similar to his language in 2001, that he had run on that. Um, we see all sorts of different all sorts of different things. Um, one thing that I talk about a little bit toward the end of the book is that there's a definite party trend um, that takes hold in the later part of the of the book. So starting with around Jimmy Carter, forward, which is that presidents 
Republican presidents tend to really stay on message and they kind of stick to these bigger ideas. So with Bush is privatizing Social Security, in 2005, he almost 30% of his speeches have some kind of mandate rhetoric, but they're all pretty much on Social Security. He doesn't mess around. Um, Ronald Reagan sticks very much to lower taxes, lower government spending. Um, we're going to tame the inflationary monster is one thing he links to the 1980 mandate, which I thought was a fantastic turn of phrase. Um, whereas the Democrats are all over the place. The Democrats are, and it's always these small things that they link up with the election. So in Clinton, I'm actually looking at a table in the book right now. So Clinton mm-hmm. claims a mandate for shrinking the White House staff for technology policy, for the economic stimulus bill, for the White House Office on Environmental Policy, and for health care reform. Um, Obama, in his first term, I haven't analyzed the data yet for the second term, so I'm not sure um, what went on in 2013, but in 2009, he has like 10 different items here. He talks about TARP, he talks about national service, he talks about stem cell research, biofuels, removing troops from Iraq, which seems plausible, but some of these smaller ones don't. I think Jimmy Carter was probably the worst offender here. Um, in 1977, he talked quite a lot about doing what he was elected to do um, and the reasons he was elected. He was a big mandate claimer, although he didn't use that word. One thing he said was that he thought zero-based budgeting was the reason that he was elected, which I feel like just can't be true. Uh, right. <laughs> right. These things that no one, if you pull people on the street, is going to have any idea what they even mean. Um along with larger policies. And so Democrats have a tendency to dilute this message and Republicans stay on message. Can I talk a little bit about the historical trajectory here? Because you had asked earlier about, okay, what is going on here and why do those factors seem to be linked up with the mandate? Um, And I can give you a little bit, kind of tie some of these different bits together a little bit if you'd like. That would be great. Um, So this actually goes back to Jackson. What I find is that if we look at, if I look at what other people have written, if we look to history, um, the situation is that presidents have long pushed at the boundaries of what seems like acceptable power. The Constitution is very vague about what presidents can and cannot do. Um, They share their powers with Congress. So there's this kind of constant interbranch struggle and this constant struggle for legitimacy. Um, and going back to Jackson, we see a reference to the mandate in the context of, of the war over the second bank of the United States, where Jackson, Jackson, over the course of his presidency, did a whole lot of things that were out of step with accepted norms. Um, he vetoed legislation just because he didn't like it. Um, and he, he vetoed the bank. That was one of the things that he, um, he had vetoed the renewal of its charter and then decided he wanted to kill it even faster. So he ordered his secretary of the treasury to remove deposits from that, that bank and place them in state banks before the charter had expired. So Jackson is really, uh, Jackson really interpreted presidential power in a pretty strong way. Um, and he used the idea of the electoral mandate to justify that. And so we can take this as a Jackson story and just say, oh, well, Andrew Jackson, you know, he he was just someone who was kind of a hothead. He had this idea about power. He was a general. But actually, I think this is not a unique Jackson story. This is a, a recurring issue over the course of the presidency. Presidents push at the boundaries of their power. Um, and at the times when presidents are doing that in a way that's really public to bring the electorate in, as you mentioned, 
um, in a way that that everyone can kind of see, um, and in a way that really arouses their enemies. That's when we see them lean on mandate rhetoric. Um, and the two instances that I talk about in the book where we see that are actually three kind of different issues of different scope um, where we see this pattern recur. One is during the course of the progressive era where people are really rethinking the presidency in a very broad way. Woodrow Wilson in particular was a proponent of this idea that the presidency could be a lot more powerful, a much bigger player, more parliamentary. The president could be a bigger um, kind of leader in Congress. Um, and he also, and he linked up this idea of the president being responsive to the people as a way to justify that expansion of presidential power. We also see this um, during the, the court packing wars with FDR. Um, when FDR was trying to change the structure of the Supreme Court in 1937, he's kind of under under fire, the New Deal um, different parts of it keep getting struck down by the Supreme Court. Um, and then he comes out with his court packing plan, which then immediately becomes very controversial. He defends it in the course of a fireside chat in terms of a mandate, um, which is one of the really the only times that FDR comes forward with a strong mandate claim. We see it. We see it a few other times, but it's not a big topic in 1932. Um it's not a big topic in his later terms. It's really when he's like under fire and um, in this conflict about the boundaries of the office. Um, and then in a more nefarious example, we also see that with Watergate. And during during Nixon's um, time in office, also a fight with Congress over the budget and over whether presidents can impound or refuse to spend funds that Congress has allocated. Um Nixon trots out the mandate to defend himself. The larger argument with regard to what's happened since the Carter administration and particularly um, since, you know, with Obama and Bush, who were both big mandate claimers, the larger argument is that now presidents are kind of always in a boundary conflict um, and that presidential legitimacy took a major hit after Vietnam and Watergate, from which has never really recovered. And that, that polarization, which kind of started up around that same time and has since only gotten worse, has contributed to this. Um, and so since presidents are constantly defending themselves and constantly under fire about the legitimacy of what they're doing, they've come to rely more on, on mandate rhetoric. Um, and in that sense, the way that the the electorate plays into this, I think, has is potentially really problematic. It's problematic in the obvious way, which is that presidents are claiming mandates for things that were not necessarily the public's priorities. I think that that does happen because I think mandate rhetoric happens in response to the political challenges of the moment and is often very disconnected from whatever was um, being discussed during the, the election. But the more, I think the more subtle problem there um, is that this is a kind of rhetorical buck passing. Um, when presidents talk about more philosophical ideas or about problem solving, they're exercising leadership. 
um, taking the public's priorities and then kind of guiding the public, given that this is their full-time job, they're called to, to public service, they're elected, they have access to all this information, all these experts, you know, they're supposed to lead. Um, and that's kind of an unpopular idea now. I think we have this kind of neo-populist and neo-progressive and anti-politician thing going on right now. I think that's misguided. Um, in particular, I think it's really problematic when presidents explain what they're do doing by saying, I'm just doing what I was elected to do. You know, I want them to, I don't want them to, to pass the buck back to the electorate. The, the buck stops here. I want them to exercise a little bit of independent judgment and stand by that. Yeah, I, I think that um, this this case that you've you've built in the book and and it sounds like in a couple of other places is is really interesting. Um, I, I really enjoyed the book. Um, I was curious, given some of the different things that you've mentioned along our conversation, what's what's next for you? Is is there another book project that we can look forward to? What <laughs> what's on your uh, summer agenda? What's on your fall agenda? What's what's what can we expect? Yeah, absolutely. So the things that I have. Um, and I've kind of jumped into one comes directly out of this project, and that's actually on party nationalization and, and asymmetry. So I've been doing a lot of archival work on the development of the two political parties and how the two parties have become increasingly nationalized. Um, going back, going back to Andrew Jackson, this is conversation sounding like a very unhealthy obsession with Andrew Jackson, which <laughs> might be true. Um, that's a very decentralized party system that was originally designed. You know, our parties used to be very localized. And obviously now they're not, um, although in some ways they still are. So I'm looking at how the parties um, how the parties developed. And that kind of comes out of this project because I kept observing all these interesting asymmetries in the way that the parties developed their, you know, the way presidents of different parties developed their, um, their messages. And you were talking about the Use Your Mandate group, um, which was actually an anti-Chuck Hagel group, um, which I thought was kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. So these these dynamics of party politics that came out in this book, I'm kind of turning my attention full-time to that. Um, and also working on some, some vice presidential selection stuff, which is also kind of looking at how presidents lead their, their parties or presidential candidates lead their parties and the impact of... Um, different VP selections on the party long term. People tend to look at um people tend to look at the VP selection and kind of say, well did that, you know, did the candidate win the state the VP was from? And then that's the end of the conversation about about the impact of the VP candidate. Or did the VP candidate say something stupid? Um and I kind of want to look at what is, you know, what are the broader trajectories and really look at um in Kind of in the ideas of one of my graduate mentors, Stephen Skoranek, how presidents change change politics and change parties and the the results of their actions. It's really interesting, and look forward to all these all these new directions for your research. Um, we have an, until these come out in their own forms. Uh, your current book, "Delivering the People's Message: The Changing Politics of the Presidential Mandate," published this year by Cornell University Press. Julia, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me.